The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. There's almost no better Sunday for us to come together after the events of the last few weeks than Transfiguration Sunday. You know, we, we pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in parts of the world that are, that are war-torn, that are persecuted, that are suffering. We, we grieve these things, the brokenness and the pain. We, we lament because we don't have all the answers. Why, God, is a refrain that we often find ourselves um, repeating, we worry, what will happen next? Where will this lead? What direction is our world heading? And there's, but there's more for us as Christians. See, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that in all of these things, we also have hope. You may think, how can we have hope with everything that's going on in the moment. And you see, this is what Paul is saying in this passage. He is addressing this letter to a group of people who are, are walking in the midst of a world that is not unlike our own. And he says in verse 12 to them, Therefore, since we have such a hope, We are very bold. Bold meaning full of courage and confidence. Paul is writing to a group of people who would know injustice. They were under tyrannical leadership themselves and a dictator uh, from Rome. Constant threat of persecution from those around them. They were always in danger or could be in danger of losing their lives. This was the reality for these people receiving these letters. And Paul reminds them of hope. Hope that is rooted not in themselves, but in the glory of the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of grace. He reminds them that it's not outside of the current realities that we can experience this and hold on to this, but it is in the midst of this. And so in 2 Corinthians 3, this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. I want to unpack for us three things that we see Paul addressing to the, the Corinthian Christians. First, the realness of glory. Second, the chase for glory, and third, the person of glory. See, we can have hope because of the realness of glory, because we can stay away from the chase of glory, and because we receive the person of glory. So let's look at these three things. First, the realness of glory. See, glory is real, and we have all tasted it. So glory in the Old Testament is a word that describes someone's worth. In the Hebrew, it's actually uh, used commonly to refer to somebody's net worth, their bottom line, material wealth, right? It, it means, so it brings up uh, with it all of this, these ideas of significance, of importance, of splendor. It's a visible thing, weight 
Other people call, call it uh, glory as being weighty, of heavy, of heaviness, of, of a significance. And so in verse 7, we hear Paul talking about glory in the Ten Commandments. It says this, and we just heard it, but I'll read it again. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved on the letters of stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? And so what Paul is doing here is he's hearkening back to that passage that, that Don read for us in Exodus 34. When Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the moral instructions, the framework that the, the, has been programmed into the world by God. And his face visibly reflects this glory. These commandments tell Israel and us how to live in relationship with God and in relationship with each other. And it's beautiful and amazing. And one thing, though, that the law of God and the glory of God reflected in the face of Moses shows us is that, that there is something that we don't have on our own. There is a magnificence, a significance, a, 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 a visible reflection of something that we lack on our own. And I think we get a taste of this, just like the Israelites got a taste of it on the face of Moses. In our lives, we experience this. As I thought about it this week, I realized that glory is a perfect word to attach to the Olympic moment. When one athlete takes the step to the top of the podium, I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of the medal ceremonies, but there is something so visible and so real about that moment that an athlete receives a gold medal. You can see it. You can just see it on their face. Just this overwhelmed emotion. It's glory. It's significant. It's so special. And as we watch this, we see the realness of glory. We glimpse it and we taste it. What about you? What in your life shows you glory? Is it a perfect sunrise that you've taken in? Is it spending time together as a family, doing something together that you love? Is it flying down the side of a mountain on a mountain bike? We all experience the realness of glory in our lives. But Paul continues. He says, uh, he, he tells us that, that the realness of glory is something that is consistent through the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, and the new covenant of grace. He doesn't just say we used to know glory, but we know glory now. And so we can expect Expect it to show up in our lives too. But what he does say and show us is that we can't get it on our own. 
this is a difficult thing for us to realize is that we rely on experiences or circumstances outside of us to experience glory. For the Olympian to take the step on top of that podium and to experience the glory of receiving a gold medal, all the others had to experience failure. When one person wins the game, all the others lose. See, we rely on other things to bring about glory in our lives. We cannot manufacture it on our own. And try as hard as we can, and we can't always get to that place. That's why glory can seem to be so elusive for us. Here one moment, gone the next. Why can't we just get back to that time in our lives, or that moment, or that place? See, because we realize the realness of glory... And, and, and rely on things outside of us, it can lead to us chasing for glory. Paul says in 12 to 14 that without Jesus and the grace of the new covenant, we will always be chasing after a glory that fades. As Moses' face was glowing, he would put a veil over it to protect the Israelites, to prevent them from what was passing away. And what he is saying is that by being exposed to this perfect glory, the glory of the Ten Commandments, the perfection of God, it shows us two things at once. That this is what we were meant to experience. We long for it. And that it also at the same time shows us everything that we are not. It condemns us. This is why Paul calls the ministry of the old covenant of the law a ministry of death. The law of God shows us that no matter what, all of our chasing, all of our efforts, all of our seeking glory on our own terms will result in death and frustration and unfulfilled desires. We can never achieve what the law says. And without Jesus, we will always be chasing glory. Often we find ourselves chasing glory by our accomplishments. Paul himself, at one point in his life, found himself trying to find glory this way. In another letter, one to the Philippians, he writes, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, confidence in what his own ability was to muster up righteousness, he says, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And so Paul if any, says, if anyone can have confidence in self-righteousness, it's him. And yet he found himself chasing something that led to unfulfilled desires. It was only when the Spirit of God knocked him off of his feet and did he see Jesus, did he stop chasing 
glory. See, it's not bad to try to be good at something, to try to try hard at something, even to try to be the best at something. It's healthy to set goals like this and to strive to use the gifts that God has given for uh, in the world in in ways that are, are good. But But when we begin to base our identity, our significance, or the reason that we can be okay with ourselves on our uh, achievements, we will find ourselves chasing a glory that fades. This is really dangerous. As C.S. Lewis points out that it's in the comparison that brings about the glory that we chase. Right? The, the pleasure of being above the rest, that's what makes our faces glow. But once the element of competition has gone, glory has also gone too. This is what happened to Israel. Moses put a veil over his face to hide them from it because they, it would leave them condemned. It would leave them devastated because they would not measure up. What Moses knew is that eventually each one of us will, will be in the room with someone who is better than us. If glory is found in self-righteousness, each one of us will eventually find ourselves empty, condemned. But in the gospel, the language changes. We don't have to chase glory. Instead, glory chases us. Glory from the person of glory. So we have to ask ourselves, how could things change from the old covenant that was based on the moral law to the new covenant of grace? How could that happen? If, if, if the people of Israel stood condemned before the law, how could things change? How can we receive a, 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 the glory from, by grace We just read from Psalm 99 earlier in the service that God is a just king, a a king of justice who cannot simply wink away our sin and our brokenness. But God sent Jesus not to wink away our sin, but to deal with our sin. See, God's perfect son came in glory. The transfiguration story that was read tells us, right, this is when Jesus takes a few of his closest followers up on the mountain and rips apart the veil that had been before them and shows them who he really is. And they are afraid because it's so perfect. The face of Jesus shone, but the rest of his body shone too. Jesus is perfect glory and he is worthy of every part of it. But then later in his life, when Jesus was on the cross, God wouldn't come near him. God couldn't be in his presence. As I was reflecting on this this week and how Jesus switched places with us when he went on the cross, I'd always thought about how I have to think about how to word this right. But I've always thought about how God turned away from Jesus in his moment of need. 
and how it was God's choice to do that. And this week I thought about it and I thought, if Jesus wore our sin, he couldn't be in the presence of God. God, God withdrew from him because of what Jesus took upon himself. Everything that, that leaves us condemned came upon him and a veil was placed between God and Christ, the veil of sin. And see, on the cross, Jesus did this so that we could have the veil lifted, so that we could come into the presence of God, so that we could partake and participate in God's glory, the perfection, the approval of God forever. The, and the, so the moment then that, that, that we turn away from all of our efforts of achievement and, and trying to prove that we're somebody, that we're worthy, the moment that we turn away from that and turn towards the God who gave his life to redeem you, that moment the veil is lifted. Turn in repentance of all of our ways of chasing glory. We are free to receive glory in Jesus. In this way, the gospel is one of the greatest paradoxes of, in our lives. Because it isn't in the moments of personal strength or accumulation of power or personal wealth that we discover the path to glory. It's through the moments of weakness, of repentance. When we lay down power or sacrifice wealth, that we find ourselves filled with a real and lasting hope. We have to give up the chase for glory in order to really receive glory. And I think often of the story when I, in, in this, the story of Joni Erickson Tada, she's a, a Christian writer and speaker, and she exemplifies this path for us, I think. At the age of 16, she was paralyzed in a diving accident. She's battled stage 3 breast cancer and contended daily with chronic pain. She has endured seasons of wrestling and sorrow and the questions of why God, why me? She is a woman who knows about suffering and who loves Jesus. And time and time again in her writings, the words of C.S. Lewis come up. She writes often of hope that animates her life. As C.S. Lewis writes, heaven will work backwards and turn agony into glory. It's in the midst of our suffering that we really come to know the glory of Jesus. Or as Tim Keller writes, while other religions help us to sit in the midst of life's joys or seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers us to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. So as we sit in the world's sorrows, injustice, and as we fight against oppression, and we long for God's justice 
to rule and to reign. We taste it even now. The glory from Jesus. That we are not alone. That we are not left without hope. That Jesus will come and will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, the ministry of the Spirit, of grace, that we can give up our striving, our self-seeking, our chasing, and turn to you, and that the veil will be lifted from our eyes, that we can come before you unhindered by our sin. Thank you for Jesus who took upon himself our sin. God, as we sit in the midst of a broken world, as we find ourselves contributing often to its brokenness, help us to taste glory every day in the midst of our lives. God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.